And hello, everybody. It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Thanks for joining us. Today on the show... So I decided to photograph everything, whether it was a rock, a piece of ice, a penguin, a hut, as if I was making a portrait of it, looking for some part of its personality or its individual spirit. The photographer Camille Seaman has gone to the ends of the earth and points in between to capture some of nature's most spectacular and fragile phenomena. Her breathtaking photos of polar icebergs and Midwestern storms have won international recognition and lots of honors. For example, uh, she was selected as a TED Senior Fellow and is currently wrapping up a Knight Journalism Fellowship at Stanford University. Uh, In retrospect, Camille's choice of subjects might not seem so surprising. After all, she was born during a hurricane and named after it, and she learned early on about her place in the natural cycle from her Native American grandfather. He points up to the sky where this little white tuft of cloud appears, and he says, do you see that? That's your water. Your sweat becomes that cloud. And the ice and storms that she photographs today are, of course, part of that cycle, too. But it took a while and some lucky happenstance for all that to come together into a vocation. Camille was an at-risk youth in high school when an instructor gave her a camera and told her to learn how to use it. And then it took a serendipitous trip to the Arctic many years later, plus the emotional urgency she felt after the 9-11 attacks before she really discovered her photographic calling. But she did, and the result is, as I said, breathtaking. I got a chance to speak to Camille this past week about her life and the lives of icebergs and storm clouds, how it's all connected, and how she's responded in her art and her environmental activism. Stay tuned. Camille, thanks for being here. I'm really happy to be here. Tell me about where you grew up and how you came to photography. Well, I grew up on Long Island in New York. And I think I was always making pictures in the family. I was the one that didn't cut the heads off. (laughs) And um, so I really enjoyed that, even with the little Kodak 110 Instamatic. Uh, I didn't ever have a brownie. I know a lot of photographers are like, I had a brownie. I did not. You had the next generation. I had the next generation, which was worse, actually. But um, So I took pictures as a kid, but I thought everybody could do it. And then when I was 15, things were really bad in my family. Um, I did not get along with my mom, so I left home. And I was going to the Fame High School of Music and the Arts in Manhattan. And the one that was uh, the subject of the movie Fame. The movie and the TV show. <laughs> right. I forgot there about the was TV occasional show. dancing in the cafeteria. <laughs> um, but uh, they recognized that I was in trouble, you know, that I could very easily drop out of school or worse. And so they put me in this after-school program where they gave me a Nichromat film camera. They took away the manual, and they said, you have to figure out how to use the camera yourself. But they taught me how to bulk load black and white film, how to process and develop it, and also uh, develop my images using an enlarger and a wet darkroom. And they said, go out and photograph your experience. And it was probably one of the best things they could have done for me because it gave me something creative and positive in a time when I was very angry and confused. So all my artsy, punk rocker, you know, um, friends and I would have all these adventures and I would photograph it. So I have this amazing record of my high school uh, experience through these pictures that I took. What were you angry about? Whew, a lot. Um... I think I was primarily angry because um, my my mother was incredibly religious, Roman Catholic. She, my mother is African-American and Italian, and she was raised Roman Catholic uh, in Harlem. And my father is Shinnecock. And, uh, Native I, American. Native American, a small fishing tribe out near the Hamptons. Long um, Island, yeah. And I was raised very much by my father's family until I was about 10 years old. And then my mom got custody of us. And things just, uh, she decided she was going to give us some religion. So we were forced to go to church. And it was too late. I was already raised in the church of nature and worshiping all that there was, not some prescribed idea of what God was. 
And so this was a huge conflict. Also, I think I was very different. My mother didn't really know what to do with me. You know, for my 13th birthday, my family bought me a T-shirt that said weirdo. That was my birthday present. So I was definitely a little different. In high school, we were required to go, because we're in New York, to museums every week. And I went through this period where I was really into this medieval period where the women would actually shave their forehead from ear to ear to make their foreheads larger. So I started doing that. I mean, that's、mm. how into art I was. My mom just didn't know what to do with that. She, I was just too strange for her, and so it created a lot of friction. So I, I was like, "This isn't working," and I left. I'd come from a really supportive tribal identity where the family—I mean, we did everything together—and also we very much supported the actions of women. We were never raised as young girls to be subordinate or submissive. We were raised to be leaders. And to stand forward and be our powerful selves, and then stepping into the in quote real world, we were sort of frowned upon for being outstanding. Was this the eighties? Yeah, I was in New York City in the mid eighties. I started tenth grade in nineteen eighty four, and I graduated in nineteen eighty seven. So right in the middle of the Koch era,、mm. lots of stuff going on. It was before New York got cleaned up and gentrified, so it was really yeah, it was a really different place. Colorful, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was.、Um, so you were saying that you related to your dad's side of the family, the Shinnecock Indian side, and your mom, Roman Catholic, was trying to Christianize you, just the way people had been doing to Native Americans for a couple centuries. Yeah. Did you think of it that way? I'm, I'm like recapitulating、uh, what had been done to Native Americans before. I don't think I was aware of it on that level. You know,、um, I was just a kid. I wasn't thinking about this is history. <laughs> <laughs> But <laughs> you know, later on, I was I was really dumbfounded that she would do this to her own kids. You know,、um, she said, "I will Christianize my heathen half breed children." What? She said that that <laughs> that that's a direct quote. You say she was African American and、uh, Italian, so she was, quote unquote, horrible term, half breed herself. Yes. What was yes. her relationship to that? Well, again, I mean, she talk about conflict. I could write a whole book about my mom.、Um, she was fascinating individual.、Uh, I think I think she really should have probably been a nun.、Um, she was beautiful, like Holly Berry, beautiful, and it was this really.、Um, Conflicted thing for her about sexuality and beauty because she was being raised in this Roman Catholic idea of guilt and sin, and、uh, she went to school, Catholic school, when it was you know rulers over the knuckles and rosary beads, you know, swung at you if you were out of line. And、um, I think her beauty was really a confusing part for her growing、mm. up. You said you you left. Did you mean you you left home? I did. One day I left a note on the pillow, saying, "I'm sorry, mom, I can't do this anymore," and I, I left. Initially, I went back to Long Island and I tried to stay with my father's mother, my grandmother. But that commute, because I was going to school in Manhattan, I'd have to get up at four in the morning to get to school, and it wasn't it wasn't working. You're taking the train. I was taking the train, and and um, so um. A bunch of friends stepped up and they said, "You know, you can sleep on my couch. You can sleep in our spare bedroom." And I and I would rotate so as to not tire out my friends, my my welcome. You know, it's funny. I didn't even think of it until this past year that I was actually homeless. I never thought of myself、mm. as such, but I was. And so I lied and said I was sixteen so that I could get a job at Woolworths as a cashier. And then I got a job as a bicycle messenger, and also in a one-hour photo lab. So these were jobs that I had to have money to support myself. You were at a pretty exclusive high school. Yes. <laughs>、um, again, what's the official name of it? 
It's called Fiorello H. LaGuardia High School of Music and the Arts. There you go. <laughs> How'd you get into that? What What was your talent that got you in? I mean, well, it was really okay. So I'm going to back up a little and say that again, something strange about my mother. She didn't give me paper when I was a child to draw on. So I remember being six years old and lying under the dining room table and drawing with crayons on the underside of the table or in my closet in my room, drawing on the walls of the closet. And one of my aunts found me, uh, said, you know, you really should give her some paper. <laughs> so uh, they got me some paper and th that was it. I was I was this machine. I just loved drawing. And it was um, not only something that I really loved to do, but it was a great escape for me. I could spend hours doing it. I would just be locked in my room doing it. And my mom used to punish me by saying, you have to come out of your room. <laughs> it, was very, it was very strange. So when I um, was getting close to high school age, my aunt said, you know, she's really good and you should send her to that school. But it, you had to audition. And one part of the test that I remember was they crumpled up a brown paper sandwich bag, just crumpled it up, threw it on the table, and said, draw that. Something that's pretty hard to draw. And and so I drew it. I don't know if I did very well, <laughs> but they accepted me. So Wow, that was the test. That was the test. <laughs> that's really interesting. I wonder what the philosophy there was. And I almost wish I had that drawing. Yeah, maybe. yeah. Well, speaking of... Still having stuff. Do you still have the photos that you took when I they do. gave you the camera and you started taking uh, pictures of your classmates? And I do. I have every negative. Any thoughts of publishing or doing something with those? I would love to. You know, especially because so many of my friends have gone on to become significant artists in New York. So I have these pictures of all of them. Budding artists. <laughs> Getting into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so quasi-homeless and at-risk youth and things could have gone bad, but they handed you a camera, and they said, learn to use it, and you started. Now, is that when you decided, I want to be a photographer? No. No, you know, that's the, that's the really crazy thing. You know, I think that um, in retrospect, everything that I've gone through, every job that I've ever had, all my experiences were in preparation for when I would be ready to become a photographer. I had no ambition. I was quite an apathetic youth. Uh, I really just thought if I can get to 21, and I didn't know. I had no plans, but I, I knew what I liked. I knew what made me happy. And when I left home, I, I remember saying I will never be as unhappy as I am now. And, and my life has been incredible. Um, I just learned to go with the flow, like follow the open doors and what felt right. I never felt pressured to do what other people thought I should do. And I'm not sure where that comes from, that, that ability to say, no, I know it's scary, but I'm going to go this way. I think partly because I did live as a 15-year-old in New York City and made it work, you know, and... um and beyond that, I went to university. Um, most people in my situation wouldn't have done that. So how did you get eventually to <laughs> the profession, the yeah. photography? Well, fast forward, um, I was 32 when the switch came on. Really? 32, very late. And like I said, everything that happened in between then was lining me up for what was about to happen. But what happened when I was 32 um, was I was holding my almost two-year-old child, my daughter, on my lap as I watched the World Trade Center fall on TV. Where were you? I was sitting on my couch in North Berkeley. And so I watched these buildings fall, and um, I immediately thought of this photo that I always have on my refrigerator. And it's one that I took as a teenager of the Brooklyn Bridge with the World Trade Center behind it. Mm. And it was always just to remind me, you know, I'm from New York. It's in my roots, you know. Um, and I remembered thinking that my daughter would never know those buildings the way that I did. 
As a bike messenger, I used to deliver things to them daily. I used to go up to 103rd floor. I knew that space, that plaza, very physically, very three-dimensionally. And so when they fell, it was the first time I understood the significance of a photograph as a historic document. I, I realized that just like a picture of our great-grandfather is proof that they existed, this photograph of these buildings was proof that they existed. And then... um couple weeks or a month later, again, sitting on the couch, watching the news, and it's just this green goggle vision, you know, where aerial precision bombing, I think, someplace in Afghanistan. And I just am thinking, we're going the wrong way. It's so dark. It's so cynical. And, and there was some part of me that was triggered. I remember thinking, I almost said it out, maybe I did say out loud, like, what can I do to counter this? What can I do to show that there's something beautiful about this life and this planet, this experience? Like, why are we complicating it like this? Why are, why are we deciding to see it in this way? And uh, it really, it was like a light switch came on. Like, like I just felt activated. It was almost like someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, it's time. Like, get your apathetic butt off of the couch and pick up that camera and do something. You hadn't been using the camera? That's the funny thing. The camera had been with me from 15 to 32. I took it with me everywhere. Is this the same Nikermat? No, unfortunately, <laughs> someone stole that out of my oh. locker, of course. Um, imagine if I had that relic. So so I had different cameras along the way, but always traveled with a camera, always was f making photos. But like I said, I didn't think anything special. I thought everybody's a photographer. It's nothing special. And then on that couch, when that switch came on, I realized the difference between before that moment and after was intention. I suddenly had intention. I had a mission. I wanted to show something. And before that, I was just sort of, you know, la-di-da, click here, click there. Ooh, that's pretty. Ooh, look at this. But no intention. And so um, I had no plan. <laughs> it wasn't like I was like, I will go to the Arctic and photograph icebergs and then I will chase tornadoes. You know, <laughs> I, I had no plan. But again, with that moving with the flow and what feels right, uh, one thing leads to another. And so it goes. So it went. Well, what did you do at that point? <laughs> the, the switch flipped on, but what did you do? Well, I have to back up again. I'm sorry. I'm like the worst storyteller. And when I was 29 years old, um, I was doing something that made me so happy. I thought it was my life's calling. I was doing my traditional beadwork. I was making moccasins and doing quill work, and I loved it. And I was selling these to galleries all over the country. And I was doing so well that I was working six days a week, 10 hours a day. And I loved it. It was like a meditation. And I loved making these beautiful things. I loved being connected to my culture. Uh, and then one day I woke up and my hand was on fire. It was like a pain I had never felt in my life. And I went to the doctor and they said, you have decravenes tendinitis and you have three options. You can let it rest. You can do cortisone shots or you can have surgery. And my lifestyle, I was like, cortisone shots, no way. Mm. Surgery, if I don't have to, I'm not going to. So I decided to let it rest. And while I was letting it rest, my boyfriend, who's my um, daughter's father, um, said he, he had to go to L.A. on business. Did I want to come with him? Uh, sure, why not? So we go to Oakland Airport, and we're waiting for a flight. And they announce, we've oversold the flight. If anyone could please wait one hour for the next flight, we will give you a free round-trip ticket anywhere we fly. And I was like, I really don't like L.A. <laughs> <laughs> I can wait an hour for a free ticket. So I gave up my seat and I got a ticket. And it turned out that it was Alaska Airlines. Now, I have to say, I had never had any ambition, desire, interest, childhood, dream, fantasy of going to the North Pole. I didn't even really consider it part of our planet. It was just that somewhere up there. Mm -hmm. And here was this free ticket. 
And I decided to go to a place called Kotzebue because Kotzebue is on the supposed Bering Land Bridge. And I was curious about this idea that we had migrated from Siberia to populate the Americas. And so I wanted to do sort of a reverse commute. And so a, a few months, I think I, I went in uh, the end of March. So it was still very cold. And this was 1999. And I flew to Kotzebue. I knew it was going to be cold. So I stopped at the North Face, bought a bunch of warm clothes, <laughs> threw it in a bag. And when I arrived in Kotzebue, my checked bag with all my warm clothes did not arrive. And by the way, you had no idea what you were doing. <laughs> no. I bet you did a pretty bad job of shopping. <laughs> so. It was really bad. No, um, I was like, you know, a need-to-know basis. Like, fly, you know, it's an adventure if you kind of have a few parts missing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah who I cares just, if you freeze to death? Well, that's the thing. I had no idea it would be minus 30. <laughs> Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> When I stepped off the plane, I just was wearing a polar fleece and some slip-on shoes, and like my nostrils just froze. It was this, as I inhaled, I could feel my lungs just, you know, this choking cold. You were just on the tarmac. Exactly. You don't have much of an airport there. <laughs> no, it was it was a Quonset <laughs> hut. You know, uh, it was just, it was, it was nothing I'd ever experienced. Thank goodness the Anupiat women who worked at the airport took pity on me and, um, Outfitted me completely in their sealskin parka, hat, glove, everything. Did they recognize you as Shinnecock? It didn't come up in that moment, but I'm, I feel really lucky globally that I am very quick to connect with Native peoples. Like It doesn't matter where I am. I don't know. There's some instant bond. And then when it is revealed, it's like, oh, of course. Wow. You know, then they called me sister or cousin. Or, what, what do you think that is? I don't know. I, is it a personality it, thing? Is it is it, it visual? What is it? It could be uh, pheromones. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I think that it's partially um, physical. You know, mm -hmm. there's something that's that's familiar. Mm. But I think also it's we we are raised to be very open. We were raised to be very generous and hospitable. And uh, when people come to visit us, it's as if you're family. Mm. And so when we visit people and they treat us like that, we recognize that. And so I think I think it's more of that. Um, and I appreciate it. I love it. it. It's a very nice way to travel. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would have, I would have suffered very, very, very so, badly. So they outfitted you, yeah, for the Arctic. I'm, I'm up there. I'm ready, geared <laughs> up to go. So uh, one morning, I just decide I'm going to walk out onto the frozen ice. This is how naive and even stupid I was. I, I didn't even bring a bottle of water. So just tucked in my parka was my camera, a film camera. This was way before digital. And at minus at 35, oh, film, film will crack. Yeah. So I have to keep it close to my body. And I'm only taking out very rarely to take pictures. And I set out the first steps onto the ice. And it's squeaky like styrofoam. And I'm like, wow, this is so weird. Really dry snow. Very dry. And everything had to be covered. I had even goggles on. Uh, so I have a scarf over my face, and I feel like Darth Vader. Or I feel like I'm in my own moon landing video, you know, like I'm stepping out onto the ice, and I'm like, wow, this is my extraterrestrial moment, only I'm on my planet. I was so aware of this, and I started walking. You were going west toward Russia. I was just going out there. I wanted to get to where the ice ends and the sea begins. I walked for a good while, and then two people approached me, each on a snowmobile, and they asked me where I was going. And they said, well, we're going that way, but we're not coming back. And so I climb on the back with a man who's an Inupiat, and I had no idea that these things go as fast as they do. We were going over 60 miles an hour, and after about five minutes, I did the math in my head, 60 miles an hour times five minutes, and I was like, whoa, stop, I have to walk this back. So it was one of the few times I actually took my camera out of my parka and photographed them as they pulled away from me, leaving me on the ice. And as I turned 
to look for the town, it was gone. And that really was a freak out moment, <laughs> partly because I realized that, you know, I was alone out there. And as I walked that walk, all of the teachings that I had as a small child came in my head, like a, a proof, me standing in this very harsh environment. I understood that I meant nothing in the scale of time and history of this planet. Like I was nothing, a speck. But that I could stand there and even think about that was a miracle. I was so aware that I was standing on my rock in space, that I was on my planet, and I was made of the material of this planet. And I started to see that, you know, how ridiculous borders are, religions, language, culture. Like, it just seems so ridiculous when you think about the fact that all of us are the same material. And so I walked back um, and I, I found out uh, I was actually a couple of weeks pregnant with my daughter as I did that walk. Wow. So it was actually quite special because uh, this awakening was really an awakening as a mother. And so fast forward to that couch and that switch coming on, suddenly as a mother, I had a, a very different uh, viewpoint. Hmm. So you've, you've brought us back to the point where you were in Berkeley the morning of September 11th, 2001, and you had kind of resolved to do something to show another side of life, to capture something else other than war and hostility, conflict, right? Mm -hmm. And that led you back into photography uh, in a way that ultimately became your real vocation? That's, that's absolutely right. Um, I knew now that I wanted to make images that would have beauty, awe, impact, emotion. And I also knew that I was 32 years old and there was no way I was going back to school. <laughs> So I had to figure out, how am I going to get the skills I need to get this done? And you also had had this moment in the Arctic. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. it's all in there, all percolating, <laughs> right? And when I got back from that walk on the Arctic, my boyfriend's mother was really curious about this idea that I had met my planet and wanted to go check it out for herself. And her name is Catherine Brown of Crown Point Press in San Francisco. She's a printmaker artist and um, amazing woman, almost 70. She decides to go on a Russian nuclear-powered icebreaker to the geographic North Pole. And she goes there and she says she has the same exact experience. She's so overwhelmed and moved by it that she wants to write a book about it. And by this time, I have a child. And she says, because I was the inspiration for this book, she wants us to go as a family to this place called Svalbard. Oh, this is an island... Uh North of Norway, right? That's correct. Really it's, far north. It's about 750 miles from the geographic North Pole. Uh-huh. And so um, by this time, the switch had come on. 2003 comes along. Summer. We're going to Svalbard. I had to look it up. I didn't even know where it was. So we fly through Norway up to Svalbard, a family, uh, my mother-in-law, my boyfriend, and my daughter, and me. And we get on a small little icebreaker. And I have to tell you, I brought with me five formats of camera. I had a four by five, a two and a quarter Rolleiflex, a, a medium format, uh, two 35 millimeters. It was crazy. But I was, I, the switch had come on and I was like, I'm going to photograph this. And so we got on this small Norwegian icebreaker called the Polar Star. And we headed out and First, we were in open water until about 79 degrees, and at 80 degrees, we hit the drift ice, and it, I fell in love. Something about being on the bow of the ship as it's pushing through this ice, and it's rubbing, and some part of you is saying, it's so wrong, like a Titanic moment, but something about it is so exhilarating, and um, I, w I just fell in love. Uh, and so I photographed that. We had an amazing time, and as a thank you to my mother-in-law for taking us to the Svalbard, the Arctic, we decided to take her to Antarctica for Christmas. So one thing leading to another, um, we, we took the same little ship in December of 2004, 
to Antarctica. The Antarctic summer. Yes, of course. We didn't <laughs> want to go in the winter. And it was, a, it was an unusual trip because we went into the Weddell Sea. And the Weddell Sea is where Shackleton's ship got crushed by the ice. The endurance. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. And uh, so that was my first time ever seeing an iceberg. And um, I have to, again, back up a little. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> before that trip to Antarctica in 2004, in August of 2004... I traveled with Steve McCurry to Tibet. Steve McCurry is a National Geographic photographer famous for the Afghan girl, the girl with the green eyes. And I loved his work because he uses natural, available light, and he does the most beautiful, soulful portraits of people. And I really thought I wanted to be a people photographer. I called him and said, how do you do what you do? And he said, well, you have to come with me to Tibet. So in August 2004, I went to Tibet with him, and it was three weeks photographing people, people, people. What was great was he really reminded me about uh, having a sensitivity to a quality of light is really what creates photographs that withstand the test of time. That if you don't have that sensitivity to quality of light, it doesn't matter how good your composition or subject is. It's just not going to, to last. Uh, and I don't mean physically last, but emotionally have significance. And so I really had this experience resonating in my head. People, 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 portraits, natural light. And then we go to Antarctica. And when we're in Antarctica, I have an uh-oh moment because there's no people. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, what am I going to do? <laughs> and it was kind of a moment of brilliance. And it was very much in alignment with my native beliefs of everything is interconnected. So I decided to photograph everything, whether it was a rock, a piece of ice, a penguin, a hut, as if I was making a portrait of it, looking for some part of its personality or its individual spirit. Again, that intention of looking for that thing that makes something unique. I think that's part of why my iceberg photos do impact people, is because they had that intention. Well, I have a crazy story for you, Camille. Before I read a word about you, I went and looked at your photographs. As soon as I found out about your work, I looked at the iceberg photos. And I immediately thought of portrait photographers, and I thought of Richard Avedon. Mm -hmm. I thought of Sebastio Salgado. And Steve McCurry. Believe it or not, I thought of Steve McCurry looking at your icebergs. How is that possible? <laughs> it's not by accident. And because I actually, I do consider Steve my photographic father. And I'll, I'll even one-up that and say that I actually called up Sebastian Salgado, too, and wanted to know how did he do certain things. So he's one of my mentors as well. I, you know, I've been thinking about it because I later read that you knew Steve McCurry. Yeah. I didn't know you you had called up Sebastio Salgado. So why did I think of those guys when looking at pictures of icebergs <laughs> without a human being in the frame? And all I could think of is, is the way that their portraits so intensely capture both the surface and something about the interior of the person. Mm. They'll wait a long time, right? Mm. Avedon did that. He'd make people sit there for a very long time. And somehow you do that with freaking pictures of ice. <laughs> Well, part of it is because, you know, um, it's not just ice to me. Like, mm -hmm. it's not frozen water. It's not just frozen water. Um, most people look at ice and they go, it's ice, it's frozen water, it's nothing. I look at it and I see so much more. I see, I see history. I see time. I see my ancestors sweat. All of our ancestors, you know, um, Mixed up in that water. Exactly. This is maybe a good time to tell you one of those stories that my grandfather mm. taught us as small children. Um, when I was about five or six years old, he took us out into the field. It was green grass, warm, hot summer day, no clouds in the sky. And he had us just sit there and sit and wait. And we were used to these kinds of things he would do. He would always have lessons for us in this way. And this particular one, we really were like, it was so hot, we were really dripping. 
And just when we're just really like starting to wilt, he points up to the sky where this little white tuft of cloud appears. And he says, do you see that? That's your water. Your sweat becomes that cloud that becomes the rain that waters the plants, that feeds the animals, that feed us. And in this way, he was speaking about that interconnected cycle, that our water is not our own. It's, it's shared. Like we, we share it. It, it, is, it is transmutable. It flows through every system in this closed ecosystem, which we call Earth. Mm-hmm. So, so when I see icebergs, I'm thinking about how much sweat is that? How many snowflakes? Uh, how much time? I mean, some of the icebergs I was looking at, they were over 200 feet above the sea level with another 800 to 1,000 feet of ice below. You're thinking, this is how many years? How much time? It's, it's overwhelming. How old are some of them? Uh, in Antarctica, they can be, you know, hundreds of thousands of years old. Oh, wow. And their history is written in their structure. Um, I should add to my description uh, of not only recognizing that you were doing a kind of portraiture, but there's poignancy. I mean, I felt sad. Now, maybe it's informed by my knowledge that these magnificent monumental things are dying. They're melting. You know, (laughs) you're catching them in the process of shrinking, 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 right? Well, I was thinking about that. You know, they fell as snowflakes. Millions and millions and millions of snowflakes piled on top of each other at the South Pole. And they slowly move over many thousands of years towards the sea just by gravity as a glacier. So you have the slow moving. It's carving the earth. It's it's making change. It's having an effect. It's, it's having its own life and creation as a glacier for many thousands of years. It could be tens, 20,000, 50,000 years. And then finally it gets to the sea, and it calves off. Huge pieces break off, sometimes the size of Manhattan or larger. And when this happens, they suddenly have a second life or a third life. And they are drifting and at the mercy of tides, currents, waves, rocks, you name it. So they're having a whole other experience. And... No two icebergs I watched had the same experience. Just like us, they, they responded to their their environment and their conditions in their own unique way. And so part of that sadness was watching them getting battered mm. and torn apart, mm. knowing that they're many thousands of years as a glacier. They only had a couple years as an iceberg. Uh, very few icebergs last more than seven to ten years. Uh, usually it's less than two years. So that is sort of a death, but it's also a rebirth. It's, you know, re-entering the this, this cycle. It's true. Um, and in the past, of course, that water would have found its way back to more ice. But that part of the cycle is... Yes, we've yeah. corrupted it. We've corrupted it. <laughs> so eventually, if we look forward, predictions are there may not be polar ice caps at some point in the future. And that... that really makes me sad. It's part of why I stopped going. I stopped going to the Arctic and Antarctic in 2011 because in just that 10-year period of me going, I had witnessed this incredible decline, uh, especially in the Arctic. I, such devastation, and I realized that I could not do more. I, I felt so terrible each time I would come back from the Arctic or Antarctic, and it seemed like here it was business as usual. Nobody was paying attention or acting as if it was having what was happening there was having any impact here or any significance of what we did here impacting there. And I just couldn't take it. I, I felt like I was being ineffective as an artist. Um, and I felt like I needed to try a different tack. I needed to figure out a new way to try and get people's attention. Hmm. And, and what is a new way? Well, um, through being a TED fellow, that brought me more to a global stage where I got, I now get to, uh, speak to a a global audience instead of more regional. And then also, uh, just this past year as a Knight fellow at Stanford, I created something called the Earth Academy. The Earth Academy basically is two things. One is an educational component where I want to build, uh, classes and a place 
to actually educate responsible citizens of Earth. Like, what is it going to take? And then the other part is uh, actually physically building small, sustainable communities in diverse geographic locations around the U.S. And the first one I'm going to build is in Detroit. I, I think that what's missing from part of this problem is a vision of what the future could and should look like. I think where Tesla has done so well with the electric car is they've shown that it's beautiful, that it's sensuous, that it it's something you want to touch. You want to be part of that experience. Have you ridden in one? Oh, I have. <laughs> Can't you tell? <laughs> it sounds like it. <laughs> the, the acceleration. Woo. Um, <laughs> and quiet. Very, very. Yeah. It's very trippy. So I think that that needs to exist as far as what a village because I think we're going to return to more hyper-local villages. And you picked Detroit, a De city that's about as ravaged as any in America. It's very symbolic uh, on many levels. Uh, one is because it was the motor city, this industrial car, oil, uh, very, very significant there. And it's time to sort of be a sort of phoenix. Why not let that place be the place that shows how to move forward? When are you going to start that project? I'm doing it now. You, you, um, you have a lot of funding for that? No, I'm I'm just about to start. Uh, what I want to do for the next year and a half, I've already started traveling around and visiting other people that are already living sustainably, figuring out what works, what doesn't work, what we can move forward with, and what to discard so that I'm not recreating other people's problems. And then uh, I just signed an architect. I'm really excited. And... Uh, I think we'll probably start building within five years. You have some land that's been well. I want to buy a few city blocks. I want to actually create a. And I'm, I'm at, Detroit doesn't know this yet, but I'm coming. Um, actually, I'm thinking about reforesting the rings of the city that are no longer uh, viable as as uh, housing mm. uh, to create carbon sink. So mm. that's something else that I feel like. It's, it's necessary, and only only because I felt like nobody else is doing it. I I had, for example, I had breakfast with Al Gore, and I said, what do we need to do to fix this? And he said, well, we need to put a tax on carbon. And I was like, yes, of course. <laughs> so in a perfect world, mm. we get this tax on carbon, then what? What's the vision? And he didn't have an answer. And that's a problem. I think part of what I loved about Martin Luther King is he didn't just say, oh, it's so bad for us, you know, the segregation. And he said, but if you come with me and you do the hard work, this is what it could be. I can see it. Follow me. We don't have that person. So I sort of... The environmental I, movement doesn't have that no, person. Yeah. No, no. Wow. So before we started this interview, you said you had a whole new... These goggles. Yeah. Is, is that what you were talking about? These are these new goggles that I have on. And um, what's interesting is I've started to realize that I need to be the change I wish to see. I've and heard it, that somewhere before. It's a bumper sticker probably. <laughs> <laughs> I need to be the change I mm -hmm. wish to see. Mm -hmm. I can't ask anyone else to be sustainable if I cannot. So I'm trying to figure out what that looks like. You know, um, not that long ago... I was flying so much, over 100,000 miles a year. Wow. I had such elite status, elite status. This is what we value, this elite status flying here and there. What's that carbon footprint? So I started to really retreat, withdraw. Now I have no status. <laughs> and I wear it with a badge of pride. <laughs> you know, I'm at the back of the line, last group call. <laughs> And I'd just like to remind you that this is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and today my guest is Camille Seaman, photographer and environmental activist. And before we uh, move on to talking about another of Camille's favorite photographic subjects, I wanted to go back uh, for a moment to that part of our conversation where we discussed her work in the Antarctic, or Antarctic, if you prefer. Well, I should tell you, Camille, when I was a kid, uh, at one phase in my life, I think maybe in like fifth or sixth grade, I was completely absorbed in Antarctic literature about Antarctic explorers. Scott, Shackleton, Mawson, those guys. I wasn't so interested in Amundsen. He had it too easy. Mm, <laughs> I he, liked was, the, he was too good. <laughs> he was too good. I know. I've read since then that the um, lionized Scott was actually really bad and did all kinds of things wrong and died, and all his guys died, and it was his fault, and 
Amundsen knew what he was doing. But I still loved that as a kid, you know. The more heroic and doomed, the better. So when I saw that you had, among your, you know, various Antarctic activities, actually gone and seen their still-standing cabins, their huts, and they're preserved really well because it's so cold, right? Exactly. It's like a time capsule. It it is overwhelming Um, emotionally. You walk in and you smell that old leather smell and old wood and there's stacks. Cans of pemmican. Well, more than that, there's lots of Hershey's chocolate and Heinz ketchup and all these things from 19-oh-whatever, 9 to 1912. In the deep freeze. It's never thawed, right? Never thawed. Wow. Uh, So really to stand and, you know, so there's Shackleton's cot that he slept on with his sleeping bag, I'm looking at the picture you took. They left everything. It was just too much of a hassle to cart it all back. So they just left everything. And even in Scott's hut. They still have all the beakers and tubes of stuff. They were doing a lot of science mm-hmm. there. Uh, the huge long table that they all had Christmas dinner around. I mean, amazing. It, it really, you feel, I did. I felt so privileged to be able to stand in those spaces almost 100 years exactly later. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We haven't talked about your other... Um, you know, big photographic subject yet. There's icebergs, but more recently, storms. Yes. And it was your daughter who suggested that you become a storm chaser? Yes. You know, actually, my daughter has never led me astray. She's amazing. (laughs) Um, Mommy, go into the heart of a furious, (laughs) deadly storm. You know, um, before I tell that story, I just want to say that there there was a moment when I had real guilt about leaving her for months at a time to be on ships in the Arctic or the Antarctic. And I I told her, I was like, you know, I feel like maybe I should stay. And she said to me, I th- she was like six years old. She said, but mommy, you have to do what makes you happy. If you don't do what makes you happy, you're going to make us miserable. So, <laughs> so with the storm chasing, this happened six years ago. She was eight years old. I was vacuuming the living room while she was sitting on the couch watching TV. And she happened to be watching Storm Chasers. And I, as I was vacuuming, caught a glimpse of this amazing color and light. But I was so frustrated. I was like, wanted them to have a wider lens or they were pointing it in the wrong direction. Usually shaky video cam footage that you see in those things. Yes. And and I was just thinking, oh, man, look at that. You know, just turn a little to the left. And she's, she caught me staring at the TV. <laughs> and she said, Mom, you should do that. And I was like, yeah. And her dad heard and said, well, why don't you go Google it? So during a commercial, I I went in and Googled storm chasing. And it turned out it's this whole world where you can pay a professional meteorologist to chase you into these storms. And I came across this one website that was uber nerdy. It had lightning flashes across the screen and thunder noises. And I was like, this is the guy. I want to go with this guy. And unfortunately, all of his trips for that season were were book solid. Where was he, by the way? Well, he was going to start chasing out of Oklahoma City. Okay. That's pretty much the epicenter of big storms in the U.S. It's a great place to start. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... I just sent him an email and said, if anybody cancels, let me know. I'm really interested in doing this. And less than an hour later, he emailed me back and said, I have one spot open. Can you be here in three days? So three days after my daughter saying, Mom, you should do this, I was doing it. And uh, I was not prepared for how awesome and epic it is. It is truly biblical. It's a word I was going to use when I saw your photographs, yeah. It's epic. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, your photographs, uh, our listeners can see them at your website, Camille Seaman, S-E-A-M-A-N dot com, or at the New York Times. They've had uh, several slideshows of your iceberg photos and your storm photos. And the storm photos taken in the American Midwest and the Great Plains, uh, the ones I've seen. And you seem to like these moments of incredible transition when there's still a lot of sunlight, but the clouds have gathered to the point where they're now doing amazing and gigantic things overhead. (laughs) And by the way, when you say storm chasing, you don't mean necessarily tornadoes. Oh, yeah. These are 
These are incipient they tornadoes. tornadoes. Right. So there's one that shows a little farmstead. Is it Nebraska? Yes. And there's a big funnel forming right above it. It hasn't yet touched down, though. So there's this layer of light above the farm, and then there's this massive cloud. Now, that does look biblical, for sure. <laughs> and it looks dangerous. That was that was a special. Okay, first let me tell you a little bit about supercells. Okay, because that's what we're chasing. Right. And supercells are not like a typical storm front, which a line of clouds can appear. Supercells are actually individual clouds that appear out of nowhere, and they do it because the the conditions are right. There's a warm, moist breeze coming from the southeast, the Gulf of Mexico, and it starts to collide with a, call it a deep trough uh, jet stream, which is coming out of the northwest, the Pacific Northwest. So you get the jet stream hitting this warm, moist air, and it starts to put a spin on these clouds. Then they're called mesocyclones because they're actually spinning. And the supercells, believe it or not, only 2% of them produce tornadoes. Mm-hmm. But they can have such amazing structure. You've seen, like that one over the farm, most people think that's a tornado, but it's actually a cloud. It's We call it a barber pole because it has that beautiful swirl like an ice cream cone. And uh, when when that was happening, I was standing in a wheat field, and it was coming right at us at about 20 miles an hour, so not so fast that you felt like, you know... You couldn't outrun you it. You couldn't outrun it, yeah. but... But I looked over at our meteorologist, and I was like, should we be worried? <laughs> and he was like, no, very relaxed. He was like, that's an LP, uh, meso. Not going to be a tornado. Basically, it was a low precipitation, meaning no rain. Uh-huh. It was very dry. And uh, because it was dry, it allowed us to see the structure without, and also see if it did produce any tornadoes. Uh, but there just wasn't enough moisture to produce uh, what what would be dangerous. So we actually let the thing come over our heads. And that it was a f- one of the few times ever in my photographic career that I didn't know what to point the camera at. <laughs> like I was just like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I grew up in an area that had tornadoes. And I remember spending hours in the basement waiting out the tornado warnings, waiting for the all clear. Uh, and the last thing I would have wanted to do is actually get in a car and drive toward them. It's a little different. You know, I have developed such incredible compassion and empathy for people that live in those areas that it can be very frightening to hear those sirens. There's nothing like it, you know. And so when things do get horrible, I really am like, oh, you get this terrible sinking feeling. And Storm Chasers, there was a famous one. It was killed just last year, right? Yeah, we were about a mile away from him. It almost got us. In that storm? In that storm. That was really something. Um, It was uh, the largest or widest recorded tornado, 2.6 miles wide. And what made it so deadly was that it was a multiple vortices tornado. So it was dropping. It was like like a -a whack-a-mole tornado. It was like dropping here, drop there, pick. uh, It was crazy. And... Probably the only thing that saved us was that a tree and a power line came down in front of our car and forced us to stop. There was a sheet of rain in front of us. What we didn't know is in that sheet of rain was this tornado. Um, so we stopped, and um, wow. we were lucky, and they were not. Uh, and he was one of the most respected, safe chasers. And it was really a wake-up call because you have to remind yourself that this can go really wrong. Well, you know, I mean, when people think of photographers getting into real trouble, they think of war photographers, some of whom get so absorbed in their work, they're no longer paying attention to the incoming artillery fire and so on. Is it like that with you and your your storm chasing? Are you so caught up in the photography that you're taking undue risks? I wouldn't say that. And in fact, last year confirmed that um, even in that situation, there was some part of me that was like, this one's different. You could feel it. You were on alert in a very almost primordial way. You were it was it was instinct. And I was very aware, um and I was so happy that I was with the group of chasers that I was with sharing a one car. We were very sensible, very calm. There was no oh my god, we gotta get out of here. Mm. It was all right, this is not good. Let's look for a safe evacuation route. Is everyone in agreement? Yes. That was it. 
It wasn't no, no drama, and and that's who you want to be with. You don't want to be with you have to, you're trusting people with your yeah. life. So yeah, um, but on on the other side of all of that, you know, one of the most amazing things about these storms is literally witnessing that vortex energy close hand, like being able to witness this this circulation. And it's that circulation which helps to make our great plains, the fertile plains that they are. Uh, it's that circulation in a larger scale that forms planets and moons and solar systems, our galaxy. So to see that energy in action is really, it's a privilege. And of course it takes us back to what your grandfather said about your sweat being up there in the sky. Well, there's there's going to be a lot more sweat in the sky if we let these icebergs melt. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so, and uh, as the planet heats up, of course, there's more energy in the system too. So, that's exactly what we're witnessing when we chase these storms. That's why they're getting bigger. Mm-hmm. More. I mean, people will argue that you, know, of course, you can't tie uh, climate change to any one storm, and that's true. But statistically, over time, you can start to make <laughs> educated statements. You know. Yes. Yes. So are you going to do it again, Camille? Are you off to chase more storms as storm season yes, is um, upon us? Because of this fellowship, the fellowship required that I did not make any photos for a whole year. The the night fellowship. The this night is fellowship. a journalism, famous journalism fellowship. Exactly. Yeah. And it, I didn't realize it. it's like sitting on my hands. Oh, it was wow. really hard not Why to. Why did it require that? Because they want you to focus on your project. Oh, your new project. Your new project. So you can't. So it's very You boat. can't even sneak <laughs> off. They, so. they can't follow you 24-7. Well, I mean, I could, I could take pictures of my daughter, things like that, but, but you know. No big projects. No big projects. Yeah. And um, so because of that, I'm itching. So the fellowship ends June 6th, and I'll be storm chasing June 15th. Wow. So just a week later, and for one week, June 15th to the 23rd. And storm chasing season traditionally is the first day of May to the last day of June. But that's gone all wonky, and now people chase all year. I mean, we had a tornado right near Christmas. Uh, they're all the time now. Uh, just like there is no fire season anymore; it's fire all the it's time. Year round, yeah. Um, so I wanna, I wanna go chase just this one week. And um, the other thing that you might be interested in knowing is that uh, at my gallery in San Francisco, they're showing five of my storm images starting June 5th for a month. Give us the details. It's at Gordon Potts Gallery, which is at 49 Geary in San Francisco. I think they're on the fourth floor. And uh, Thursday, I'll be there, June 5th, um, for the opening, and, and it'll be up for a month. Well, that sounds like a safe environment, but when you go out uh, to the Midwest, uh, play it safe, okay, Camille? <laughs> <laughs> I always do. And you can see Camille Seaman's photographs at her website, CamilleSeaman.com. Seaman is spelled S-E-A-M-A-N. And you can hear uh, more of our programs at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com, or you can go to iTunes, or you can listen on your favorite mobile device using such apps as the Stitcher Radio app. Oh, and before I go, uh, here's a little bonus segment for you online listeners. We didn't have the uh, space to include this in the on-air version. But uh, I wanted to ask Camille a few more geekier questions about photographic technology and equipment, uh, so I did in this part of the conversation. You use a lot of film cameras, even in this age of digital photography. Yes, I was a late adopter. Yeah, but you're still using film cameras? You know, it's funny that you say that because I was just at my studio yesterday and I was handling all my film saying, my precious, I still have my film. <laughs> So yeah, I still do. You still do. It's it's so much more difficult. It's more expensive. Uh, you know, you know the advantages of digital, right? Just snap away. You can instantly see what you took. You can alter it easily. And film is stubborn stuff. Why do you stick with it? I remember the first time I ever listened to a CD. It was so harsh on my ears. Mm. It was so hyper clean, like crunchy. You call it. It kind of hurt. I remember having a headache. And when you listen to vinyl, it's much softer. It's more organic, or it has it's a more velvet quality to the sound. And it's the same with film and digital. Uh, a lot of people treat their digital; they put 
stuff filters whatever to give it a softer feel after yeah but if you if you if you're just using your digital straight out of the camera it can feel really that hyper crunchy and i'm not sure if we see that way i'm always thinking about how how we how we actually see with our eyes yeah what do you think my favorite camera of all time is a leica rangefinder Ah, and classic. like yeah beautiful a beautiful machine to hold just when you when you push that shutter you actually can feel the light burning onto the negative it's this, it really is this punk it's this beautiful like ah oh, you you are capturing something and um i try to be very aware of the language that i use around photography a lot of people say shoot and uh shot and i i make or capture um I don't take pictures. I make pictures. Hmm. And and especially when you're doing that with any sort of sensitive person, it's really important to have that in mind. Like I I try to avoid this war language. So so the Leica is this beautiful machine and when you look at what Leica glass can do, it has a word called bokeh, B O K E H. It's a Japanese word, and it refers to this beautiful soft edge that can happen. It's this, it's this intangible, and I think that something about a bokeh of a Leica lens as a print is nothing has touched it yet. Huh. People, camera makers around the world, still strive to to reach that. Um. And it's a rangefinder, which means it's you know it's that's kind of limited compared to a reflex camera, right? Or it's entirely freeing. <laughs> you know what's cool about a rangefinder is when you're looking through the viewfinder, you're actually seeing more than uh, you will actually capture, uh-huh. and so that allows you to really control composition. And you can see someone walking in before they're actually in your frame. So it allows you, that's part of why Cartier-Bresson used a Leica. Oh, and Gary Winograd too, yeah. This, this moment, you know, yeah. this idea of the, the precise moment. Right. So, so you, can, you can really play with a Leica in a way that you cannot with an SLR because the SLR is almost like a horse with blinders. Right. You know, you're only going to see what's, what's comes in there and right. then it's too late or. That's really interesting. Uh, I said Gary Winograd. There's a film of him shooting on the streets of New York, walking around with his Leica. And he just holds it with one hand up next to his eye, and he's just snapping really fast. And he was a master of catching just this amazing, special moment. Uh, you know, and he'd do it really fast. I've seen, like, his proof sheets, and everything on them is great. <laughs> well, part of that is the Leica. Uh-huh. The Leica is such a remarkable machine that you can learn to use it with one hand. And if you know the camera if you and the lens, you don't even really have to look through it to know what you're going to mm-hmm. get. And uh, one of the things that Steve McCurry uh, shared with me was know your tool. Like he, he, because he saw me with my five different formats and he was like, you are ridiculous. <laughs> So he challenged me. He said, I challenge you to shoot one format of camera for one year with one lens. Oh, and just one lens. Wow. So I chose the Leica with a 35 um, lens on it. And 35 is about how we see as humans. It's that kind of just slightly peripheral. Yeah, but boy, that limits you with your landscape photography, doesn't it? No. No? Because the other thing that Steve, and I, I'm fully behind this, uh, crop with your feet Oh. So none of this zoom in, zoom out. <laughs> if you want to zoom in, zoom in with your feet. Take some steps forward or zoom out. Take some steps back. And and this, the subtlest things can change. I, I find that even just moving an inch this way, playing an inch that way can really change everything. It's almost like a dance. If you watched me photograph, you'd be like, what is she doing? <laughs> but uh, So when you crop with your feet when you're shooting icebergs, you're moving... You're moving your boat. Exactly. <laughs> and sometimes that's possible. Sometimes it isn't. Yeah. You know, with polar bears, I'm definitely using a long lens. Don't be, <laughs> don't be fooled. You know, like... I'm, no 35 millimeter for polar bears. <laughs> no. Sorry. <laughs> I got to keep it real there. <laughs> I've also read that you are not 
fond of manipulating your photographs heavily at all, uh, that you're trying to capture the quality of light as it actually appeared and not enhance it in any way. That's true. And you'll desaturate a photograph to get that realistic. That's true. Narrower palette. Yeah. Um, part, part of the message of my images is that we have an amazing planet as is. It doesn't need Photoshop. And so how, how would that come across if I manipulated my images very much? The whole point is to put in the time, be patient, and wait for the right light. Or in my case, in the Arctic and Antarctic, I was really lucky. The storms just followed me. So it was always overcast. And you got these beautiful uh, blue icebergs. As soon as the clouds go away and the sun comes out, they go all white. That's not very interesting. Oh, wow. So you want overcast. Oh, yeah, definitely. If you want the detail of the mm. icebergs. Mm. Um, in general, you don't. this is something Steve yelled at me harshly for. What the hell are you doing out there in this harsh light? You know, when, when it's uh, soft, overcast is perfect. Cloudy, stormy, even more dramatic, more moody. Uh, don't be afraid to embrace the darkness. <laughs> um, I, I mean that. Like, uh, if you look at... A lot of old paintings, they have this beautiful chiaroscuro, this mm -hmm. from dark to light. Um, some of my favorites are Vermeer, Rembrandt, oh, you Caravaggio. Know, it's so funny, I was looking at your photographs here at the station the other day. I have a friend here who's Dutch. And I said, you know, these, some of these storm photos remind me of the Dutch masters. The landscape, yeah. you know, the flat landscape of Holland and exactly, the huge the Flemish. and she and I said does it really do they have those amazing skies and she said oh yeah this is yeah <laughs> yeah so I all that art history is mm. in there for me mm -hmm. and I, I I'm always referencing you know ooh like uh, Constable and Turner were oh, I yeah. was so their their landscapes and I honestly if, if truth be told at the end of the day I'm a frustrated painter like I just couldn't paint but I can do it with the camera <laughs> much easier. So, so the not manipulating. Um, when I'm uh, using film, it's a, um, a neutral color. I'm not using any ultra or vivid. I want to use film that's going to translate what I'm seeing, not hype it up. And when I'm using digital, I'm turning everything off. I don't want the contrast boosted, nothing. I'm trying to create as close to what I'm seeing in life as possible, capturing as much data as possible so that I can pull that out. But you'll use Photoshop to correct for anything that the camera added, right? And you'll to get yes. back to the yes. original scene. That's true, because uh, sometimes, for example, you adjust your contrast in Photoshop suddenly it boosts up the saturation. So you have to dial that down or turn it down or off. Uh, so, yes, and, and you probably know this. I have a rule. If, I don't, if it takes me more than one minute from start <laughs> to finish on an image in Photoshop, I won't use it. I'm not correcting horizons, not cropping edges. It's as I, f as I photographed it. And part of that is um, a prideful thing. Like I, I want it to be like, this is what I intended from beginning to end. I want to make the image in the camera, not in the computer. And that is it for this week's 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week.